The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Okay. So, uh, hope everybody's having a good day so far. I'm having a very good day so far. I visited two used bookstores this morning. Didn't, didn't find anything to buy, but uh, it was fun. Um, I have a question really quick. I have like five different ways that I could go this afternoon, and I've been trying to figure out what you guys want to hear most of. Um, and so, first, first of all, I'm going to talk for a few minutes, but I love questions, so Q&A, we're gonna, I want to leave room at the end for any kind of Q&A if you guys have anything you want to know. Um, uh, the other thing I would say, like, are, how many of you guys, raise your hands if you are here because you are a songwriter? Okay, what about stories, prose, poetry, that kind of thing? Okay, what, raise your hand if you just kind of want to hear in general uh, me blab about storytelling and kind of how that whole thing works. Okay. Wow, that did not narrow anything down for me. That, <laughs> I really thought that would help, but it didn't help. Uh, so I've got some, like, more nuts and bolts kind of stuff that I could talk about um, songwriting-wise, or the, it, it applies across a whole bunch of disciplines. Um, some principles that I've kind of narrowed down as things that I've had to learn the hard way over the years about how writing works. Um, but then I was like, um, I would love to kind of tell you just a little bit about my story and how I ended up doing what I do. Um, I uh, wrote um, this piece for for the Molehill, which is a, uh, a journal, like a literary journal that the Rabbit Room publishes. Which makes me think maybe I should give you a little bit of background. Um, for some of you guys who uh, have never seen me play or heard me talk or anything before, my name is Andrew Peterson. It's good to be here with you. Uh, I live. <laughs> sorry, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I've been there for about 18 years, so like pretty long enough to where it, it's like longer than it, it has been cool to live in Nashville. Um, and it, there's, I was just telling somebody about how in Austin, anybody from Austin, Texas, or been to Austin, super cool town. Austin has these shirts that say, keep Austin weird. Um, and uh, Nashville is growing really fast right now. Like there's a microbrewery popping up on every corner and it's like this, there's hipsters everywhere. And, and I just heard somebody told me that they saw a t-shirt that said, keep Nashville lame. <laughs> Which I thought was awesome. I kind of feel, I'm turning into the crusty old man who like when I'm stuck in traffic, I'm like, who are you people? Go home, you know. Uh, so anyway, so I live in Nashville. I love living in Nashville. Uh, one of the I moved there for music. Um, well, 18 years ago, right when I got out of college, um, when I was in Bible college, I, I put out my my first record. It was an indie record, and uh, and this was in 1995, I think it was, maybe 96. Um, which is like, if you think about it, this is pre GPS, pre easy internet. Like, I remember there was one computer in my college library that you had to do this dial-up thing, and everybody would kind of sign in for their 30 minutes to do research. Uh, that kind of thing. So it was back then, it was like, it was not everybody had a demo CD. You didn't have a garage band. You didn't have any way to make a record except to actually do what I did, which was take a Greyhound bus to Nashville and spend uh, three days and $3,000 in a studio on Music Row kind of thing. So I started doing music then. Uh, by the time I had graduated, uh, I had, was convinced that maybe this was a calling. Um, and so moved to Nashville like the week uh, my wife and I got out of school and um, did what everybody does who first moves to Nashville, and that is I got a job at the Olive Garden waiting tables. 
and uh, had that like that thud of, of dread that happened when I realized that almost every other waiter at the restaurant had a demo in their seat in their car and was there for music. I'm not, not exaggerating. It was terrifying. Uh, and add to that, I was the worst waiter in the history of the Olive Garden. And so, um, so anyway, so about three months uh, after I, I started working there, I met this band called Cademan's Call. Uh, so anybody remember the band Cademan's Call? A few of you guys do? Yeah. So back then, like, this whole, like, kind of college indie music scene was just, just beginning. And especially, like, to, for a Christian band to do that kind of music was a new thing. So I was just really intrigued by them. I knew that they were big Rich Mullins fans, and I was a big Rich Mullins fan. So I went, I signed up one night online uh, in my Olive Garden uniform, came back to my little apartment in Nashville, and was so depressed because I couldn't get a single show. When I was in Florida, uh, I went to this little Bible college, so without really meaning to, I had led songs for a bunch of youth conferences and done church camps and stuff, so I had, I knew like every youth pastor in the state, so anytime I needed to show, I would just call up one of my friends and say, hey, can I, you want to not preach Sunday night, and I can come and play, and they'll take up a love offering, and I'll, my wife and I would, uh, we would, um, we went to Sam's and splurged on a JVC tape deck dubbing um, thing, where you would buy these TDK bricks of tapes, and like sit there, and you'd have the one, and you'd push record and it would actually record my lame demos faster so that it would take about six hours of doing that to get about 20 little tapes that I would then go to the college library copy machine and I would copy out the liner notes and my wife and I would take the shunk and fold them all up into the thing and uh, sell them for five dollars a piece and it would kind of cover the gas money to get to the church show so I kind of that was going really well we were making tens of dollars and uh And so why not move to Nashville, you know? So we moved to Nashville, couldn't get a single show. Like had no, uh, like just up there, I just didn't know anybody. And I would send, you know, my CDs to people, pastors. I just didn't have any real clue how to do this. And, uh, and I finally got one show because I cold called a, uh, a church in, somewhere in Missouri. I just went down the list. I was calling churches because in my paradigm, churches were all I kind of knew. I'm a pastor's kid, grew up, you know, Bible college, that whole thing. And uh, called a church and finally got uh, through the secretary to the pastor at this little town church in Missouri. And I said, is there any way I could come and play some songs for you and your, your church? And the guy was like, well, we don't really do concerts, but we are having a homecoming picnic at a park in town. And I guess if you wanted to come stand by a tree and play some songs, you could. And uh, I was like, absolutely, sir, I will be there. So I, I remember hanging up the phone and telling my wife, I was like, we got a gig, we got a show. And we hugged and danced. And, uh, and so anyway, uh, we put it on the calendar in big, bold letters. You know, it was like, we're, we have a concert. Uh, and, and to be fair, I was driving back to Florida to do lots of concerts. But the goal was to kind of spread out and do them elsewhere. So anyway... We were planning to drive six hours to this little town in Missouri, and the week before the show, I called uh, just to get directions because back then there was no Google Maps. There was nothing. You had to actually get written directions to the church building. And I called the guy, and uh, he was like, now, who is this again? And I was like, oh, my name's Andrew Peterson. Remember, I was going to come stand by a tree and play. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, uh, oh, did my secretary not call you? We kind of talked about it and decided that'd be too weird. So, no, never mind. You can't come. It's just like, oh, so depressing. So it was right around that time, maybe that week, I got home from the Olive Garden, signed into AOL, the sound thing, and I found the website for this band, Cademan's Call, and I went to their message board, which was this crazy idea. And uh, 
And I posted a message on there that said, hey guys, I really love your music. I know you're a Rich Mullins fan. Uh, I am too. Here's a link to my website. Which, by the way, my website address was about you know, 86 characters long. And uh, had like long strings of numbers and percent signs and hashtags because I didn't know how to like make a domain name. So I memorized it. I would, when somebody would ask for my website, I'd be like, yes, it's www.721872% uh, percent sign, 723. And they would write it down, you know. So I included that link in my little message to, on the Caveman's Call website. And one of the guys in the band actually followed the link. And he went back to my little website and read the lyrics. And then went back onto their website and said, read this guy's lyrics. Um, you guys check out his music. And it all happened in the space of about 30 minutes. I was sitting there with goosebumps. I was like, whoa, I just made it through to this band, you know? And so uh, it was amazing. And people were reading the lyrics and commenting on him and liking him. And I was crying. I was like, oh, thank you, Lord, you know? So I went and met the band. They happened to have a show in, in Tennessee sometime around there. And I said, hey, I'm that guy, Andrew. You went to my website. And they were, I said, can I may, like open a show for you sometime? And uh, they said yes without ever having heard me play. They hadn't even heard the CD yet. They just read the lyrics. And so uh, anyway, so I did this, this show. I brought a box of 30 CDs um, to the Union University in, in uh, Jackson, Tennessee. And I played in the like student union building uh, before those guys. And it was just like, oh, this is my audience. It was like college students. And it was people who were kind of wrestling with the same stuff that I was wrestling with. And sold out of the CDs in, in seconds, you know, and we had 300, it was 15 bucks a piece, so what, it was like 450 bucks or something like that, uh, that we made in this little blue money bag, which was going to allow us to actually pay the rent that month. That was kind of like uh, where we were at. And then they invited me on a tour, 52 shows all over America on a tour bus. So when people ask me, how do you get started doing music, I have no idea what to answer. I'm always like, go get a job at the Olive Garden. Uh, <laughs> Work really hard, I guess. The, the biggest thing is you just say yes. You say yes to anything, anything that you can, any chance that you have. If you believe that this is your vocation, your calling, then it doesn't have to be glamorous. Uh, you just say yes. And one of the best examples of that to me is uh, one of my best friends. His name is Gabe Scott, and he just uh, produced my newest album. Um, is a great guy. He and I met almost 20 years ago, 19 years ago. Um, when I was living in Florida, I was in Bible college, one of my buddies uh, asked me to do the concert for his junior high all-nighter at his church, a junior high lock-in at a 3 a.m. time slot. He wanted me to play 3 a.m. I was like, dude, you're crazy. There's no way I'm going to do that. And he's like, I'll give you 40 bucks. And I said, I will definitely be there at <laughs> 3 a.m. So I said yes, and I showed up, and I played for a bunch of junior hires who were, you know, they were all hopped up on Mountain Dew. and. They were crying because they'd never stayed up all night before, and, and uh, <laughs> it was miserable. And uh, but one of the chaperones was this guy named Gabe Scott, and and I met him, and he was like, "So I play guitar too," and we ended up kind of like sneaking into the pastor's office and playing Rich Mullins and Randy Stonehill songs for hours till dawn, and uh, became one of my best friends in the world. He just produced the new Crowder record last year. And, and produce my new record. He's just this treasure. So I always think, I re remind myself, when you get invited to the really crappy gig, sometimes you just say yes, because you, you never know. You keep your eyes peeled. Um, and so anyway, that's kind of the, the, the background. So living in Nashville, um, uh, ended up getting a record contract and, and putting out some CDs. And around that time, my kids were old enough to, for me to start reading to them. 
And, uh, and in the process, I thought, when they were like four or five years old, my oldest two, uh, I thought, I'm going to read the Narnia books to my boys. And, um, and so I read them to my kids, cried again and again. They didn't get it. Like, I think that if, if you've read the Narnia books and you don't like them, wait until you have children. Read the Narnia books to your kids. I think they're best experienced, not even by the kids, but by the parent reading to the kids. Um, and so I just had this, this uh, intense experience reading this story, like seeing the way C.S. Lewis was able to name parts of my story that I didn't have a name for yet. Um, and it wrecked me. And it reminded me of the fact that way back before I picked up a guitar, um, I was the nerdy kid who was reading Dragonlance novels and Dungeons and Dragons books and drawing dragons on his folders and listening to Pink Floyd records, you know, in my headphones and tripping out. And, uh, and so I was this nerdy kid who my, my fondest dream was to be a Batman penciler. I wanted to go to Savannah College of Art and Design and study illustration and pencil Batman comics. At around eighth grade, I realized that girls were not into Batman comic illustrators, uh, that, that, but they were into guitar players. And so I started learning to play piano and guitar, and music just kind of took over. And you know, the whole time, I was, I was trying to get at something. I was trying to find, it's hard to explain, but like, do you guys remember the first time you watched The Goonies? Anybody remember that? Or the first time you watched Raiders of the Lost Ark? or Star Wars, that, that kind of little flutter that you got in your stomach at the thought of like an, a system of underground tunnels that led to a pirate ship, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, or the first, like I remember vividly, one of, one of those big experiences was um, begging my mom and dad for uh, these books called Dragonlance books, which I had seen at, at Walden Books or whatever, at the mall. And, uh, and they had these really cool covers and illustrations, and they just, you know, cut pictures of taverns and bards and a fireplace and a dwarf, you know, sipping a mug of ale. There's something about that that just lit me up. And I begged my dad. And at that time, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember this, but, uh, but Dungeons and Dragons was like the most evil thing you could possibly do. It was like, if you want to worship Satan, then play Dungeons and Dragons, right? Uh, and so that made the church terrified of anything that had a dragon or a wizard or whatever in it, which is so weirdly inconsistent because everybody was reading Narnia and Lord of the Rings. Uh, but, but my dad was very wary of it. And, uh, and at the same time, by the way, they were, the youth group, they were showing all these videos that explained how rock and roll was also going to ruin your soul. And, uh, and what, the thing I remember most vividly is playing uh, Another One Bites the Dust by Queen backwards, and it says, start to smoke marijuana. Uh, which, like, that makes no sense. That, like, you would listen to Another One Bites the Dust and just feel the urge to smoke weed backwards. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know, understand it at all. But anyway, but I remember one of the big things was them saying that the band Journey was especially evil because they had the record covers. I don't know if you guys remember them, but they had this kind of spaceship motif. And they were like the scarab beetle looking spaceship, really cool, like flying through the stars, and, uh, which has nothing to do with Journey songs. But it was cool in the 70s and 80s to do that. And, and the guy in the video said that Journey was to be avoided because the scarab beetle was an ancient Egyptian like symbol, God, something, so that if you listen to Journey, you'll worship an ancient Egyptian god. And my dad was like, yeah, you cannot listen to this music. And yet, he listened to the song Open Arms on his easy listening station all the time. And I was like, Dad, that's the same band. So it was this weird, <laughs> weird thing. And so, uh, so growing up in this, in this season where I was, I was being told again and again that, that uh, rock music is bad and... Um, and stories about dragons or whatever are also bad. They're going to destroy you. And yet, 
there I was growing up in a church um, where I was going to Sunday school and big church and then youth meeting and then Sunday night church and then Wednesday night Bible study and youth meeting and church camp and youth conferences. I was that kid, right? I was a pastor's kid. I had to go to all that stuff. I was being fed all of this stuff um, and none of it was stirring my heart, (laughs) really. But then the things that were stirring my heart were these stories of faraway lands and it was this this music that I, I remember laying on my on my bed in my bedroom with my, kind of these old cheap block boxy speakers, and I would set them on either side of my head, and listen to this Pink Floyd record called uh, "A Momentary Lapse of Reason." It's a great album, um, and so listen to it because it it woke something up in me, like it did something. Something was happening inside of me, uh, and the same thing was true when I watched Goonies and. Lord of the Rings, or Raised of the Lost Ark, whatever it was. There were just these things. And yet, those things that woke me up, I was being told by my church and this little southern culture that I was in that those things were bad for me. Church is good for you. Um, and so there was this weird uh, divide between the things that woke me up and the things that made me go to sleep. Um, and so it was very confusing, right? Like, imagine how confusing that would be to, to be a kid who's being told um, if, you're, if your heart feels something it's wrong to feel that thing, right? Um, sometimes it is, just for the record. Like, your heart isn't to be trusted. Uh, but what I'm getting at is the C.S. Lewis idea of uh, joy. Have you guys ever heard him, read, read him talk about Sehnsucht? Is this German word? Uh, S-E, I don't know how to spell it. H-N-S-U-C-H-T. Sehnsucht. And it's this German word that kind of means like a deep sense of like yearning or longing or joy. Uh, or C.S. Lewis called it joy. But it's kind of a painful thing. I'm just curious. Do you guys ever remember a moment? Uh, Nate Wilson, last night, he talked about sitting by the river and seeing the light come through the trees and recognizing that this river had been running and it was a part of God's word that was spoken. Do you guys remember a moment in your life when you you can kind of like think back to your childhood, even your adulthood, and go, yes, that was a moment when everything kind of clarified for just a minute. And what you feel, if you can remember those, if you can't remember it right now, I would challenge you to try to remember it. Sit down and do some work and try to remember those moments in your life where things shifted into place, shifted into focus, and suddenly you you were able to believe maybe a little easier than you could before. Um, So when I think about those moments, it was the Pink Floyd record, it was some of the movies that I've mentioned, it was the feeling of unwrapping on Christmas morning. I finally wore my dad down and talked him into letting me buy the Dragonlance books or get him for Christmas, and the feeling of holding a story in my hands and going like, there, I'm going to be in my bedroom for the next four days, and I'll be adventuring if you need me, that kind of thing. Uh, like when I think about that, Frederick Buechner says, pay attention to the moments when you're crying without knowing why you're crying. Because um, it could be grace trying to break through. It could be a moment of grace. So pay attention to those moments. Most of us kind of remember those things. Um, and so... Uh, my point is, uh, I was a very confused kid growing up uh, because I didn't associate any of those feelings with the gospel. I had been basically told not to associate those things with the gospel. Those things were bad. The gospel was good. And so by this long, circuitous route, I uh, ended up um, going to Bible college um, because they didn't have a math requirement. Um, I'd, <laughs> And so, uh, so I went there, but, the, but what got me there was the fact that uh, I was this, the year after high school, I played in a rock band, it was the worst rock band in, in the world, um, 
and we played cover songs, so it was like Nirvana and Metallica and Van Halen and uh, U2 stuff, and, and we were so bad. I, I was the bass player. I can't play bass. And, um, but I grew my hair long. I wore a vest for some reason. And um, I actually remember this is so embarrassing, but it, this, is the, this is the, like, early 90s. you got to give me some grace. Um, but, but I had a shirt that was made of rayon um, that was covered with, it was a white shirt with black music notes all over it. And I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. So I would like jump off of speakers and do this kind of stuff, like kick, kick the amp over and that kind of stuff in my music note shirt. And so I was in this, this rock band, and we t- I was so excited because uh, the, our band, I was from Florida, and our band toured Wisconsin. And my friends were like, where are you going? I was like, I'm going to this place called Wisconsin. <laughs> and, uh, and we spent like a whole... Uh, tour, six or eight month tour kind of in Minnesota, Wisconsin region and uh, I got home because the band broke up thank the Lord and, uh, and like I said my hair was long, I looked like a Hanson guy and, uh, and my, my friends were like, what was it like in Wisconsin? I was like, it was amazing you guys uh, just like felt like I had seen the world, you know, and owned it and uh, so there I was Living with uh, one of my best friends who, was, uh, who I'd met at church camp. He's the guy that taught me to play the guitar. Uh, my first song on the guitar was Patience by Guns N' Roses. It's in C, so it's a good place to start. And uh, anyway, when I got home, I was living with my parents. Felt like, you know, I, this town is too small for me. I've been to Wisconsin. Can I? So I called. I, <laughs> I'm only kind of joking. And so I called, called my buddy from church camp, and I said... Uh, he was in high school still, and I was like, man, are you cool if I like, move in with you? And, and he was like, yeah, dude, come on over. And so I drove an hour to Jacksonville, Florida, and with my you know, Dodge Omni hatchback and whatever I had to my name, showed up at his house, went in his bedroom, and his mom got home from work. She was like, Andrew, what are you doing here? I was like, oh, well, CJ said I could live here. And she was like, okay, cool. And, uh, and so it was really weird because I was a year out of high school. My buddy was still in high school, so I would like wake up in the morning, eat cereal with him, uh, and tell him, good luck on your science test, and then he would go to school, and I would stay in the house all day, practicing music and playing, waiting on him to get home from school, and then we would play Rush songs. And so, uh, crazy. So, somewhere in there, like, if you had asked me if I was a Christian, I would have said yes. Uh, but I was not interested in Jesus. Um, I was not interested in the gospel. I was uh, very nom- nominally a Christian. And, uh, and then my buddy happened to be uh, really involved in his youth group, and he was leading uh, worship songs and and uh, songs like uh, "Hail, Hail, Line of Judah." Do you guys remember that? And and it was like stuff that I'd never heard before. I was like, "Oh, this is this is cool," you know. And he would invite me to come play with him, and I play guitar with him and his buddies. And he gives me this Rich Mullins tape, uh, and he goes, "Hey, will you learn this song called If I Stand' so I can sing it in church Sunday?" And I was like, "Yeah, who is this? Is it is it Journey?" And he was like, "No, it's Rich Mullins." And and uh, and I was like, is it Christian music? Because blah, I don't want to play Christian music. And he just convinced me. And so I went to the church. I had a key to the church uh, because the, they, they let me go in there after hours and play the piano. I used to love to go into this big cavernous uh, auditorium with the lights out. And I would just turn on the little light on the piano. And there would be this little cone of light in this big empty auditorium. And I would sit in there by myself and play piano and and, you know, cry because I didn't have a girlfriend and that kind of stuff. And, uh, and kind of loved it at the same time. Loved all the sadness that I was feeling. And, 
anyway, I brought this little boombox tape player and put it on the front corner of the piano, and I pushed play. And the song that I heard was the song "If I Stand," and it, and the 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 first words of the song were, "There's more that rises in the morning than the sun. There's more that shines in the night than just the moon. There's more than just this fire here that keeps me warm and a shelter that is larger than this room. And there's a loyalty that's deeper than mere sentiment." and a music higher than the songs that I can sing. The stuff of earth competes for the allegiance I owe only to the giver of all good things. So if I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. And if I can't, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. And if I sing, let me sing for the joy that is born in me these songs. And if I weep, let it be as a man who is longing for his home. And I sat there, in the dark and let those words kind of wash over me. And, uh, and it was as if God had reached through the, the lyric of that song, this big glowing hand, deep into this dungeon in my heart and turned on a light switch. And uh, You know, it was kind of like Beauty and the Beast where light was shooting out of the ends of his fingers. <laughs> uh, but it was, this, it was one of those moments, like something, something very real changed inside of me in that moment. And it was through this song. Part of the thing that did it was the fact that Rich Mullins wasn't a great singer. There was nothing slick about Rich Mullins. Um, he had this raspy voice. He was a chain smoker. Uh, I didn't know it at the time, but you could hear that his voice was rough. And when he sang about stuff, he, he said, if, if I weep, let it be as a man who's longing for his home. I didn't know Christians were allowed to weep. Uh, I didn't know Christians were allowed to struggle and suffer. I didn't know they were allowed to bring that struggle and suffer and aim it at God, right? Um, this is all new to me, and it completely changed me. It changed the course of my whole life. That one single moment, uh, God used a song, three and a half minute song, um, to get my attention and change everything. Um, have you guys uh, heard of, I saw the, they have the book up there, it's called um, Desiring the Kingdom by Jamie Smith, James K. Smith. Anybody read that book? A few of you guys may have read it. Um, I, I want to recommend that you read it, but it's one of those Christian books. Like, I have a hard time with Christian books sometimes because they, I feel like I get it in the first five chapters, and then they just go on. Uh, and Jamie's really smart. The guy that wrote the book, he's, he's brilliant. And so, uh, so don't, you know, if you read it, just know that you can start it and abandon it once you get it because it's amazing. What he talks about... What he talks about is the fact that, that he says that his main thesis of the book is that, you know, back in the day they used to say that, um, you know, what made humans different from animals is that we are rational creatures. We are rational. We can problem solve or, you know, whatever. We can think and talk in a way that creatures can't. And then somebody else came along and said, no, uh, no, that's not true. There's something deeper than that. He said we are fundamentally believing creatures. And I don't remember who all these smart, Andy Crouch and Nate would be able to draw a diagram of the people who said these things. Um, are you guys in here by chance? No, they're not. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> so that somebody else kind of digs a little deeper and says, no, human beings are fundamentally believing creatures. He's like, he was saying that what we believe is what shapes our lives, right? The direction of our lives is, is influenced by what, what it is that we believe to be true, our worldview, right? You guys have all heard worldview talk. That's good, good thinking, but... Uh, James Smith, his, part of his thesis, he goes, no, there's another layer deeper than that. He says, human beings are primarily desiring creatures. We are creatures that were made to love things, right? 
We were made to, to long for things, to ache for things. And so at the fall, our ability to love the right things in the, in the right way was fractured. It was broken. And so now we're always aiming our love at the wrong things, right? We're always shooting, pointing them all these directions, and, and that gets us into trouble and ruins our lives most of the time, right? Or looking for love in all the wrong places. And so one of the things that James Smith talks about is that beauty, uh, beauty is, uh, it recalibrates our hearts, right? It, it aims our hearts at the right things. And specifically within the confines of the church, like he talks about liturgy a lot. The liturgy, walking into a liturgical service where it acknowledges the sacramental beauty of the world as one of the ways that God is getting our attention. And our hearts are kicking around all week long and then we go to church and we take communion. And somebody says, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And you take communion, and all of a sudden your compass goes, zoom. It's aimed again. And you, you remember that I've been aiming my love at the wrong things. Um, every painful thing that I've done in my life is because I aimed my love at the wrong thing, right? Um, so those moments where beauty breaks through, where the gospel breaks through, those are moments of recalibration of your broken compass, Right? Um, we are made to desire. And so the gospel, made beautiful, um, not the gospel that says you should be ashamed of yourself, the gospel that says God made the Rocky Mountains, God made great songs, he makes great stories, he invites us into this constant remaking and reshaping of the world like Andy was talking about last night. That is beauty, that is beautiful. Um, so anyway, that was, that was the big moment. It was me realizing that the things that my heart, the kind of compass drifted toward, Adventure stories, really great songs, music that, w- that lifted me out of this, this world. All of those things were not in, in and of themselves bad things. Those things were actually calling me to something beautiful. And so when I finally realized that through, because of Rich Mullins, because of C.S. Lewis, because of some of the writers that I loved, that there is not a secular molecule in the universe. That's David Dark's idea. There's not a secular molecule in the universe. All of creation is proclaiming God's God's existence, God's nature, again and again and again. And so, so then I was able to kind of like look at the things that I loved and see that the God, they were dripping with the gospel. They were dripping with God's presence. And so my whole life since then has been uh, the last 20 years or however long um, from the CDs to the books, it's been me trying to um, step into that river, step into the river of, of longing, of beauty, and try really hard to make things that were going to be signposts to the coming kingdom. I think that is what, uh, that's what Christians who are writers or poets or artists, whatever you may be called to create, like ultimately the thing that you're trying to make is a signpost to the coming creation, signpost to the gospel, signpost to the fact that this is not all that there is. This is beautiful. This is good. There's some great good coming. This thundering beauty on the horizon that is entering into this world. And we get to point people to it. We get to tell stories that wake up that longing inside of people. And so, uh, anyway, that, I'm kind of running out of steam here. Um, yeah, that, there you go. I didn't use any of my notes. So, I, I have some things I can talk about. But does that wake up any questions for you guys? Anything you want to... Comments, like if there's anything that I... Um, stirred up in you, I would love to hear it. And I'm just going to give it 20 seconds because there's always a weird, weird pause when you ask for questions. I'm not afraid of silence. Anybody? So the adventure stories happened 
about 10 years ago. And uh, I think I mentioned it earlier. It was me reading the Narnia books to the kids that, that reminded me that I loved those things before music. Um, and, you know, every, most of us at some point or another probably said, one day I'm going to write a novel. And uh, we start them and we never finish them, whatever. Uh, but having done music for several years taught me the discipline of finishing. Um, taught me the discipline of uh, kind of patience in the, in the long process of making something. And so uh, I don't think I could have written a book before I learned that through music. Um, and so I just, I remember one night talking to my wife and saying, hey, are you cool if I don't watch Lost with you anymore? And uh, I just spend that hour every night working on my story. And of course, she's always been supportive and gave me the thumbs up. And so, uh, so it was about 10 years ago that I, who asked that question? I didn't see who asked the question. Hi. Uh, it was about, t- that just reminded me of one of my most embarrassing stories, really quick. <laughs> I was at a Christian high school one time, and I was the keynote speaker for this Faith and Arts Week, and it was like 600 kids out there in the auditorium, and it was the last, they put me at the last hour, no, last hour and a half of Friday afternoon for high school kids. And uh, I was like, oh man, this is going to be hard, and so I did, I told them everything I could think to tell them. It was a 75-minute slot that I had. And I, and I was like, well, I guess that's about it. And I look over at the headmaster, and I was like, are we good? And he goes, you've only been talking for 15 minutes. <laughs> I had an hour left. And I was like, gulp, you know. So I was like, please, somebody ask me a question. And this kid asked me a question that was a pretty good question. And as I was answering the question, uh, you know, I meandered a little bit, and I came back around, and I looked out over, and the kid was asleep. Uh, so the, <laughs> the kid who had asked me the question was like... On the front row is the most depressing, yeah, depressing moment. So, uh, <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, that's the kind of thing about the, the adventure stories. And uh, is is I had learned a few things about songwriting. So let me give you some nuts and bolts stuff. I see some of you guys taking notes. Let me uh, let me find my my notes. There's some principles that I think are pretty universal when it comes to um, to sorry. Where's my page? When it comes to, to the creative work, um, one thing is, I think you should all read an essay called On Fairy Stories by J.R.R. Tolkien. If some of you guys read that, I heard an audible reaction. It's great, isn't it? It's an amazing uh, bunch of theology packed into this very small space. Um, okay, I think I found it. The problem is when I printed this out, it printed both sides of the paper, and now I'm just so confused. Okay, so um, so the the on fairy stories one of the one of the Tolkien ideas that has shaped me uh, as a songwriter and as an author is that uh, that we are sub creators. I have this soapbox about the the word the when people use the word creative as a noun and not an adjective. And what I mean by that is when you read read about conferences for creatives, uh, when somebody self identifies as a creative, um, I get it because I like I know. Uh, Nolan and I were talking about this yesterday, my buddy, uh, about how um, some of you, if you grew up kind of as the artsier person in your group of friends, it can be pretty lonely, right? You can kind of feel like everybody else kind of gets something about the world but you, and why do I care about these things more than everybody else? And, and, uh, and so um, being in a place where a lot of people around you are also into the same things is a really encouraging, it's a good thing. It's one of the reasons I love Nashville. Um, but the, uh, the problem with it is, is that when you start, words have power, right? So when you've got a word like creative, um, which is a 
big word, I mean, deep word. Like, it's a word that is, uh, like, encompasses one of the, the key things about our image-bearing selves, right? Um, that is not one, per, one group of people's niche area, right? Like, uh, when you start going, we're going to have a conference for creatives, it kind of, like, ends up feeling kind of a little bit elitist, a little bit like, we're over here being, create, being creatives. The rest of you guys are just bankers. Um, <laughs> Or whatever it may be. I think that's dangerous, to be honest. Like, uh, I think it's dangerous because of Tolkien's uh, philosophy of art and how art works. And here's what he said. And one of his ideas, he coined the word "subcreator." I think Nate and Andy may have used it yesterday. Subcreator. So God makes the world. He puts people in it. He, like Andy said last night, go out into the world and make stuff. Like, get creative. Make beautiful things. Um, uh, we are little creators. We are sub-creators. God is the creator with a capital C. Every single human being you've ever met is creative. Okay? It looks different on different people. My wife would never, ever go to an arts conference or a writing conference. Uh, she would never th- think of herself as a, an artist or a creative person. Um, but if you guys came over to my house, you would see, you would s- smell the candles that she always has burning. You would, uh, you would see the way that she's arranged the, uh, the fall decorations on our mantle. <laughs> you would see the way she's got the couches set in a certain way so that when you walk into our house, they invite you in to sit around the fireplace. Like, that's the image of God bearing itself out in my life. My daughter's the same way. She, every single time I come home, she wants me to see how she has rearranged her bedroom. <laughs> and it's, it's unbelievable. Like, she moves her dresser and her bookshelf and her bed against the walls. She's 13 years old, but she's, and she goes, and she wants me to see it. That's the other crazy thing. Like, it's not enough for her to just do it. She wants to delight in it. She wants to say, it's good, right? Come, agree with me. It's good. Um, that's the image of God. Everybody, everybody is called to do that in their own way, okay? So uh, that's one of the reasons the Rabbit Room started. The Rabbit Room, if, if you guys are interested, go to rabbitroom.com. It's a um, kind of community of authors and songwriters and pastors and uh, whatever, visual artists. And uh, who like to write about stuff. And we sell books that we like and music that we like there. And we have a conference uh, called Hutch Moot. Because uh, rabbits live in a hutch. And a moot is an old English word for a meeting. So the Rabbit Room conference is called Hutch Moot. And so uh, anyway, some of you guys have been to Hutch Moot, right? I said raise your hands if you've been there. A few of you guys have. Um, one of the things I love about it, and you guys may agree with me, is that it's not just artists. Like what's great about Hutch Moot is that you meet stay-at-home moms and you meet accountants and you meet artists, you meet visual designers, you meet all kinds of people, and we're there to celebrate the fact that God has made us all creative. Um, so, why did I bring that up? Oh, because of Tolkien's idea that we are sub-creators. We are called to speak light into the world, to embody that picture of creation, speak light into the darkness. Every single person here is called to do that. And so, uh, when it comes to writing the books, I sat down and went, okay, if it's true that I'm a sub-creator, I am made in God's image to speak things into being, how do you start writing a fantasy adventure novel? Well, I will say, let there be a planet. And then I say, okay, let there be a continent over here and another continent over here and an ocean between them. And then I go, okay, so what happens after that? I guess maybe I name them. And I call the place where the bad guys live Dang. And I call the continent where the good guys live scree and the ocean is called the dark sea of darkness 
Uh, and my imagination starts to kick in, right? I start getting kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm visualizing. I don't know if you guys are doing it right now, but you can kind of see the waters separating from the land. And, and, uh, and then I go, okay, where are the rivers going to be in the forests? And what if I put mountains over here? And once that's all populated, I thought, what about the monsters? What about the creatures that live in this world? What if there are cows with fangs? There are in my world. They're called the toothy cows. And so the, the toothy cows live there, and every, they're the scariest thing you can encounter in the forest. And so I, f- I filled, filled the forests and the plains with as many creatures as I could think to fill them with, and the seas with sea dragons and all this stuff. And then I started to populate it with cities, you know. Uh, and then suddenly, once I had this world, I had to go, okay, now what is the story that plays itself out in the world? Because before, in order for there to be a story, there has to be a world for the story to happen in, right? So imagine, um, if you can, if you dare, that you are God, and you want to tell a story uh, about your own nature, about how much you are capable of loving. Um, It makes a lot of sense that you would make a place for the story to exist in. You would create a continent, and then once you filled it all, you would then make people, and you would say, I'm going to set in motion uh, a story that is going to lead to love. Right, and so as I was sitting there, it was this creepy feeling. It was just like, wow, this is crazy. And I, I wrote, I thought, I kept thinking the uh, the main character, Janner Igaby, who's 12 years old, lives in this little town called Glipwood. My attention kept drifting over to this side, and I went, okay, zoom in closer. What do I see in Glipwood? I see a little boy who's afraid that he's a nobody, uh, a little boy who feels like his life is maybe a giant waste of space. Basically, a little version of Andrew when he was 12 years old. Um, and that little boy, Janner, is going to go on a journey uh, where, uh, I'm, where I, as the author of his story, I'm going to turn him into something amazing, right? So I had in my mind, in a very vague way, I thought, I want to tell a story about this kid becoming a hero, a great hero. And, uh, and I knew that the only way to turn Janner Igaby into a hero was to ruin his life. was to send him into darkness, was to write into his story scenes where that he would be completely surrounded by darkness and shadow, where he would not know how the light was going to win, to put him in a corner and at the last moment lift the curtain and show him that the author of his story has a great good in mind for him, right? If you want a theological head trip, try writing a fantasy novel. <laughs> try writing any novel. It's a crazy thing. My, a friend of mine asked me, what did God teach you about himself in the process of writing your books and it was like well that's easy it's that um, in order for there to be a story you have to have conflict Um, in order for my character to change into this I have to strip him of everything that's familiar and send him on a painful journey Um, so anyway that was 10 years ago and last year the last book um, came out and there you go that's a long answer you're not asleep that's good I'm so glad you're not asleep um so since you're taking notes, a few quick things. There's some principles that, that if you want to write a story, uh, uh, I, I feel like you should know. Um, oh, man, you know what? I'm going to change my mind about that. I'm going to tell you. Well, okay, I'll tell you. I'll tell you quickly. So the first thing is discipline. You can write this down if you want. Discipline. Discipline is huge. I, uh, there's a book called The War of Art by a guy named Stephen Pressfield that you should read if you haven't and if you're not easily offended by the F word. Um, it's a little 80-page book that is like just basically a drill sergeant saying, get busy, 
write the book, stop surfing the internet. I read somewhere somebody said that having, uh, being a writer who has an internet connection is like being a carpenter who has a TV on the back of his hammer. Uh, <laughs> so, so I, uh, when I, whenever I'm in like hardcore book writing mode, I actually, there's an app, and I don't know if it's still out there, it's been a year since I've written, but, but it's called um, Self Control. And, and you, it's this app that writes into the code of your computer, uh, you tell it what websites you don't wanna be allowed to access, and you start a timer, and you literally, even if you restart your computer, you cannot access those websites until that timer runs out. And so when I sit down to write at the coffee house or whatever, I, before I'm, it's like, oh, quick, I gotta do it before I think to whatever. I put Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, whatever, on, and the news, you know? Because suddenly, when you're writing, you wanna know what's going on in the world, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I blocked all of those websites for two hours. So for a two hour time slot, I'm stuck. I gotta sit there and actually just, it's just me and the computer and I've gotta write. And then suddenly I start looking outside going, I wonder what temperature it is outside. <laughs> weather.com, you know, I wonder what it's gonna be like later today. So I had to block the weather app. I did, I blocked the weather website, it's ridiculous. So discipline, self-discipline is huge. Um, the, uh, I'm trying to remember anything else. Uh, I'm kind of just breezing through these things. Okay, this is a big one, servanthood. You want to write it down, servanthood. And then there's two subheadings under servanthood. There's servanthood to the work, which uh, is a Madeline Langle idea. It's another book that you should read. It's called Walking on Water. Um, definitely read that. Anybody read Walking on Water by Madeline Langle? They might even have that up in the church bookstore. Um, it's a great, great book. Hugely formative when I first started doing this stuff. Um, but one of her core ideas is that we are not called to dominate the work that we're making. We, we leave room for the work to speak to us, to change, to become something else. So the example I usually use, there's a song that I wrote called My Baby Loves to Dance. I wrote it as a lullaby for my daughter. And when I wrote it, I was like, oh man, have I got a chorus idea? And uh, the chorus idea was like that Shakespeare thing about hell hath no fury like a woman scorn. And I was going to find a way to say that in a less you know, archaic way, but then have the turn be but there's no love in all the world like the love of a little girl. And so that was going to be my chorus, and I could already envision the, the money that I was going to make on all the CDs I was going to sell. Because it's like, oh, this is going to be. And so I wrote the, the verses as like throwaway verses. They were just like, okay, I'll just run write these verses really quick so that I can get to this killer chorus. And, uh, and we got into the studio, and I was in the, the vocal booth with my headphones on in the dark, and my buddy Ben's playing the piano, and we recorded it. And it felt all wrong. I was like, this isn't right, is it? And he was like, yeah, I kind of like got really bored in there. And I asked the controller, I was like, how did it feel to you guys? Boring. I was like, okay, so let's tweak it this way. And we tried some other things. And finally, I looked at the lyric sheet, and I was like, what happens if I just scratch out the chorus? All of the choruses, three choruses, kunk. And I just went like that with the verses. And there it was. There was the song. Um, so the very thing that... I thought was the most important thing about the song was the thing that had to get nixed, right? Annie Dillard writes a lot about that. You've got to go in and just like get rid of everything that doesn't belong in the song, even your precious little babies. So um, anyway, so that's a big one is servanthood to the work. Allow the work to tell you what it wants to be, okay? Um, yeah, whatever your agenda is for the work is probably not as good as God's agenda for the work. So you make room for that to happen. Um, and so then the other thing is servanthood to the listener. It's a big thing. Um, which, really quickly, it's avoid using esoteric language. 
don't show off. <laughs> That's the thing. Uh, David Wilcox, great songwriter, talked about, he said, don't try to be clever in your songs. Like when I listen to my early songs, all I can hear is some guy trying to be clever, trying to show off. Look what I can do with a phrase. Um, and it, all it does is draw attention away from the song and onto the songwriter. That's not what you want to do. Um, so uh, one good example, I have a song called Hosanna. And in the second verse or something of Hosanna, I had this line that said, I've striven to remove this raiment, uh, tried to hide every shimmering strand. And uh, my buddy Ben was like, okay, wait, wait, you have striven to remove this raiment? Uh, I was like, yeah, man, it's like epic. And, and he was like, okay, you can, you can use either striven or raiment, but you can't use both <laughs> striven and raiment in one song. You know, I was like, okay, okay. So now it's I struggled to remove this raiment. And, uh, and it's better, it's stronger. So it was, uh, he called me on the fact that I was just trying to show off that I knew a cool word, right? Don't do that. It's not serving anybody um, except yourself. So uh, don't self-indulge. Um, but also don't dumb it down. One of the... One of the best ways to insult your listener is to treat them like they're dumb. Um, I think that, uh, that there's a lot of art out there that um, tries, to be, tries really hard to just go, well, I need to make it as clear as possible um, for, the, for the listener. Um, and when you listen to that, what do you do? You just check out, right? There's this great Pixar um, principle. Um, I'm, I'm always fascinated by how those guys tell their stories. They're really, really good at it, and they've thought a lot about it. Philosophically, One of their principles is you give the audience two plus two, not four. Uh, and what he means by that, he said, uh, Andrew Stanton, one of their directors, he said, he said, your audience wants to work for their entertainment, but not too hard, right? So you don't give them algebraic equations. You don't tell a story that's so obtuse that the audience is going, wah. But you also don't, like, just show all your cards. You, you invite them in. You go, I'm going to assume that you can add two plus two. So when you tell a joke, right, the punchline of a joke, the laugh comes when you realize, okay, wait, I'm going to do the math four. Oh, I get it now, right? So when you write a song, do the same thing. You, you, you don't show... When you introduce a song, if you're a songwriter here, don't tell everybody what the song is about from start to finish and then play the song from start to finish, right? That's, it doesn't do any good. Set up the song in such a way that is a question so that the song is the answer to the question. Does that make sense? So serve the listener. Um, the next one is selectivity. Selectivity, I might have made up that word. I'm not totally sure. Um, but the, the point of this is bringing it into focus. Um, one of the, the biggest, easiest ways to tell that a songwriter is a young songwriter is that their songs are way too long. They feel like they need to like, include everything under heaven and earth you know, in this song. Uh, and it's, it's terribly boring, right? Uh, figure out what the one thing is in this song that it is about and write about that little, tiny, tiny, little, narrow thing. And that's how you get to the... And there's a good biblical principle at work here. Uh, they're called the Gospels. Um, the Holy Spirit exercised a lot of selectivity, right? Um, we did not, what does the end of John, the Gospel of John, say? And if we were to write down everything that Jesus did, all the libraries in the world would not be able to contain them, right? So, uh, so the Holy Spirit said, well, I'm just going to tell you the things that are... I'm going to zoom in and I'm going to get, draw it all into focus very sharply so that I can tell you the important things. The Gospels are a real, really tiny part of the Bible, right? So same thing with songs. Like zoom in as close as you can. Um, I'm trying to think of a few examples. I'll just leave it at that since I'm burning through. And the last thing, well, the second to last thing is discernment. Um, and this idea is 
you need to learn, be a student of good songwriting. Be a student of good books. Like, uh, develop an opinion about what makes a good song or a bad song. Like, study the thing. Like, look at it. If, if, and one of the good examples I give is that uh, if, if history tells you that Paradise Lost is one of the great works of, of poetry or literature, right? And you tried Paradise Lost and you were like, ah, it didn't really do much for me and I abandoned it. Maybe it's you that has the problem, right? Maybe, maybe we need to humble ourselves enough to go, well, if this thing's lasted 400 years, we need to be willing to step into the thing and humble ourselves and figure out why it's, why it's important, right? Bob Dylan was that for me. When I was in high school, all I knew about Bob Dylan was Saturday Night Live skits, right? Uh, the, that, that whole thing. I was like, why? Why Bob Dylan? I don't understand it. And finally, I thought, if I'm going to be a real songwriter and I'm going to live in Nashville and everybody says that Bob Dylan is one of the great American songwriters, maybe I'm the one that's got the problem. Maybe I need to just spend time with it, eat my vegetables, right? And so I called a buddy and I was like, what's the best Bob Dylan album to start with? And he goes, Blood on the Tracks. So I, <laughs> it's a good one, right? So I bought Blood on the Tracks and I listened to it about 16 times before I completely fell in love with it, right? And like the light bulb went on. I was like, oh my goodness, these songs are amazing. And I kind of went down the rabbit hole and fell in love with this stuff. So same thing's true of a museum of fine art. If you go to a, a museum, if you guys, you know the feeling of looking at a painting and you go, why is this in a museum? I could do this, right? And then there's the docent, and they're giving the tour, and there's this crowd of people, and you kind of lean over to listen to what they say. And after you hear the story of the painting, you stand back and you look at it again, and there it is. You go, okay, I get it now. So humble yourself. Uh, study the work. Study what, what makes a good song. Develop like a healthy snobbery. That could go dark really easily, so make sure it's not the dark kind of snobbery. But develop an idea of like what makes a really great book or a great song. Um, so... And then I think I'm going to close with this. Let me make sure I've covered all my bases here. You've only been talking for 15 minutes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> How long have I been talking, by the way? How much time do we have? Okay, cool. So uh, the last thing I'll say is this discernment. This is the, the final. Wait, I already said that, didn't I? Community. That's the last one. Community. Is the final thing. Uh, community is huge, and that's one of the things that I feel like Park Park Church has going on, right? I was just talking to you, Neil, about was it you, Neil, or somebody about how community was like one of the things that drew you here. I hope that you can find a community of people in your town. I hope you can find a group of people. A ch that's what the church is for, right? Um, lean into this community of people uh, because uh, I have learned that community nourishes art. And art nourishes community. There's a symbiotic relationship that's happening there. Um, and uh, I've been a, the, the recipient of the blessing of a good community in Nashville. Um, one of the great things about living in a city like Nashville is that almost every, uh, you know, how do I put it? Um, it's just really good for you to, to be uh, in a city full of people who are better than you at songwriting. <laughs> That's the thing, is like I, you go and you hear these people and you're like, oh my goodness, I've got so far to go. And it fires you up and you go home and you work, you know. Um, but apart from that, there's a group of us uh, that we called, the square, we called ourselves the Square Peg Alliance um, about 15 years ago. Um, like I said, when I first moved to Nashville, got a record deal. And uh, then it was 2001, I'm sorry, yeah, 2001, my second record came out. 
the first record did really well. So there's always this like expectation on the sophomore release of a new artist, right? So I had, we worked really hard on this album when we got ready, and I've been like, okay, this is going to be, whatever happens next is going to shape my career. And uh, my second album released on September 11th, 2001. That was the day that it came out. I was in a radio station uh, doing, kind of like promoting that night's big release show. And we were talking, and, and I was all nervous. And I was like, yeah, and we wrote all these songs that really seemed to matter a lot. And then somebody burst into the room and said, we have to go to the news. Something terrible just happened. Um, and man, that was, it was a crazy day. Um, it's hard to complain about it, right? I don't, I don't ever want to make it sound like my life was hard because of that happened. Um, but it really did shape things. So 2001 happened. The economy tanked after that. I don't know if you guys remember that. Uh, Napster suddenly became a big deal. People started learning how to download and steal music. Um, and so the music industry just collapsed underneath all of that stuff. Um, and so second record came out, and it was just like, whoa. You know, first record sold this many, second record sold this many. And, and literally, seriously, this is on a like, major label. La uh, two days ago, um, my second record just showed up on iTunes. <laughs> okay, from 2001. Because that 9-11 thing screwed up so much stuff in the release that like you could go, until two days ago, you could go online and you would see all of the 10 or 12 albums that I put out except for that one that came out on that day. And I would email my manager. I'd be like, why doesn't the label have it up? And they're, oh, sorry, the computer system's messed up. So, so now you can go buy my second record, finally. <laughs> so, uh, but it was, a, it was a crazy time. And so my label said uh, they were really great. Um, they should have dropped me after the second record because they, you know, they're a business. They've got to make their money. And they very kindly said, make one more record. We'll see how it does. And that was an album called Love and Thunder, which was about... Um, some pretty sad songs in that record because that, that, all that stuff coincided with some deeply painful stuff that happened in my life uh, right around that time. So the third record ended up being this kind of somber album that I'm very proud of. But, um, but the label called me after that record came out and said, we're going to have to cancel your contract. And uh, It was a really dark season. It was like, oh, what do I do? And uh, At the time, I was working on Behold the Lamb of God, this Christmas CD that the label wouldn't let me record because they, uh, they didn't get it. They were like, ah, oh, well, it's, people want traditional Christmas songs when they hear Christmas music, so, so no. So years went by. We'd do the tour, and I'd go to the label. Hey, can I now record this Behold the Lamb of God CD? And they'd be like, yeah, we just don't really get it. You can't really do it. And so finally they dropped me, and the first thing I did was release this album, <laughs> uh, which worked out great, actually. And so uh, anyway, I say uh, that's the setup for the fact that I found myself living in Nashville with three kids and a mortgage payment, and, uh, and music was not easy. It was hard. And there's a, it's really easy to quit doing music. Uh, there are many times when I questioned my calling, where I forgot about that sense of clarity that I had that night at the piano when I heard the Rich Mullins song. Um, there were a lot of forces at work that were like, felt like they were pushing me out of a music career. And, uh, and right around that time, uh, we had some other friends. Jill Phillips, a great singer-songwriter. Had an album, got dropped from the record label because the industry tanked. And she was kind of like going, okay, I guess I'll try to do this independently. And then Andy Gullihorn, her husband, the same way. And Jeremy Casella, and um, Sandra McCracken, and Derek Webb, all these people. We kind of found ourselves in this weird place where there was CCM music, the kind of slick. And that was right when worship music got popular. And uh, did you see that? That was kind of supposed to be funny. <laughs> So, uh, but it was kind of like, well, now songwriting doesn't matter. It's all about, like, 
really repetitive worship songs that are easy to play. And that's all you heard on the radio, right? And so there was no room anymore for people who were writing story songs or songs that were kind of like crafted to take you on a journey instead of just being this, we're all on all the time, and then the next song comes on. So we were kind of confused because it was like, well, I don't feel called. I feel like it would be a betrayal of my calling to just change the kind of songs that I love and just try to write really simple worship songs. I was like, no, this, that, does, that would feel like a sellout. I'm going to keep doing this. Uh, but then over here you had a lot of our friends, uh, Matthew Perriman Jones, um, trying to think who else would follow, like, who were like playing clubs, right? Mainstream music, and they were getting mainstream radio play and felt called to that. And so I was going, well, what about those of us who are like unabashedly Christian? You know, the, the stuff that we're writing about is like explicitly Christian, but it's also not worship music. So we can't really go playing clubs over here. And ah, and so we had this moment where we were all like on the verge of quitting. We were like, we don't know what to do. And so we had a meeting at uh, Andrew Osenga's house. And uh, we said, what do we do? And we said, the only way we're going to make it through this season is if we join forces. If we give a name to our community. If we say, you know what? We're going to lock arms with one another. And on the days when I feel like my music is a waste of time or that I'm not gifted anymore or I don't know what I'm doing, I'm going to need you to step in to my life and look me in the eye and say, keep writing. The world needs your music. God put this calling on you, and it's not supposed to be easy all the time. Keep doing it. I need your songs. Keep writing your songs. And then there have been plenty of times where I've done that to other friends who felt like quitting. I've looked at them and said, don't stop. Even if you have to get a day job, don't stop writing music. Keep doing the thing. And so uh, it was a wonderful season. It was like the season where... Uh, we toured together. Anytime somebody had a show, you'd invite your buddy, hey, come open for me. I'll come open for you the next one, you know, cross-pollinate our fan bases, you know, and make it so that, like, we're going to keep doing this. We're going to keep fighting the fight and make, try to make beautiful things, keep putting beautiful things in the world, even if they're not popular, right? Even if they're not selling thousands and thousands of copies, we're going to keep doing it. And uh, about two years ago, I was lamenting the fact that I never got to see my friends anymore. The Square Peg Alliance, it kind of just came and went over the course of several years. And we don't really do stuff together anymore. And I was grieving that. And then I realized the reason that I don't see my friends in Square Peg Alliance anymore is because we're all so busy touring. <laughs> it was like this delightful realization that like it worked. Like the community kept us alive during the season when we really needed each other. you know. And so the point is... I know that I'm a much better writer than I would have been if I didn't have better writers around me. I know that I probably would have quit music years ago if I didn't have people in my life telling me this stuff is life-giving and important. So I, I challenge you, find that. Uh, I bet there are people here at this church who would be thrilled to lock arms with you and say, no, no we're going we're gonna to try to keep you going. It's part of the reason the rabbit room exists, is to try to like say, okay, well, maybe the waves of culture out there are going to say, well, what you're doing doesn't matter because it doesn't sell. Well, the rabbit room is going to, we're going to exist to publish the books that nobody else will publish. We're going to try to like sell the CDs that nobody, that CCM music will never play. But we really believe that God put these people in the world to do this thing, right? So community is huge. Find a community. And I think that's, that's all of my principles of songwriting. Um, uh, let me make sure that I've kind of covered everything that I wanted to say to you guys. Oh, the last, last couple things I'd say. Any questions? Yeah. Thanks. 
That is a good question. I think that um, it's important to not bleed on your audience. Um, do you guys know what I mean when I say that? Like, have you ever been at a concert or a sermon where the guy was just like, like, it was like a counseling session? We're all kind of here and uh, that's not how it works. Like, uh, and it's tricky. I don't know exactly how to articulate this, but uh, one of my favorite authors, uh, his name is Walter Wongren Jr. Um, if you've not read his works, please do. He's amazing. Um, in his memoirs, he almost always cast himself as the knucklehead, as the, the guy who's got the lesson to learn, you know what I mean? And, uh, and I admire that so much about him. I heard somebody say one time, beware of the man who is the hero of his own stories. Um, so as a songwriter, I think it's really important to make it so that uh, Jesus is the hero of the story that you're telling, okay? Like God is the hero of the story. We are the ones who have the thing to learn. Um, and so, but the trick is, um, in order to avoid being too confessional, oversharing, you know, I think that it's really important um, to have some distance from the thing that you're writing about so that you can see at least the edges of the redemption that's coming so that you're not uh, exercising just uh, self-indulgence or self-expression in your journal. Like you have, you want, like if I'm telling the story, this dark part of my story, I'm telling it because I believe that it'll resonate with you and, and I have something I want to share with you. Like even if I don't give a clear answer, at least we're commiserating, right? At least I'm doing it in such a way that isn't saying, help me, help me. It's going to say, hey, I bet you felt this too. Let me tell you about what I felt. Does that make sense? It's kind of a fine line. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so I'm not saying don't dig down deep. And don't write, don't be vulnerable. But I think it's really important But between the time you write the thing that is, uh, is deeply painful and whatever, and the time you share it for public consumption or you put it on a record, make sure that you've distanced yourself from it enough to look at it and go, is this going to be helpful? Is this, or is this me asking for help from people? You know what I mean? Um, there's a uh, Yo-Yo Ma. You guys know Yo-Yo Ma, the cellist. He dealt with stage fright for a long time. It was so interesting to me that Yo-Yo Ma dealt with stage fright. Uh, I forget where I read this article, but he talked about the way that he overcame stage fright was he realized that he needed to think of his shows as a dinner party at his house, and he was the host, right? So when he made that turn in his mind, it made it so that instead of being so terrified backstage, he could kind of go, okay, wait a minute. It's my job to love these people. It's my job to make you guys feel comfortable. It's my job to share something beautiful with you tonight, right? Not to go, help me, clap longer, I need you, blah. It can get weird when that happens. So I think that like when I, think, when I sit down to write a record, I'm constantly asking myself, I'm being vulnerable here, frighteningly so, um, but I'm, I'm doing this because I believe that it is going to be a blessing to that person, not so that that person can be. I think I'm overstating my point. You get what I'm saying. Does that help? Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. Huh. I think that that moment at the piano was me coming to know the love of the Lord Jesus. Um, I knew him for, for as long as I can remember. And to be honest, like I don't ever remember not thinking he was really there or that God was really there. Um, I, I have not struggled with doubting God's existence half as much as I have struggled with doubting God's affection for me. 
right? It's easy for me to believe that there's a force out there that made all of this amazing stuff. But the part, the part that the rub comes when, when the gospel tells me, believe that he laid down his life for you and, uh, and that he knows you intimately and loves you completely, that I doubt all the time. And, uh, and I think that's the kid that I was. I was growing up in this, you know, and I don't want to make it sound like my parents were, you know, completely missed the point or whatever. My dad's a pastor. He preached the gospel. I know he did. But in that culture, there was an implied gospel. There was an explicit gospel which said, God loves you and he died for the wicked. He laid down his life. And then the implied gospel was, oh, but if you screw up, he's going to be really disappointed in you. He's going to be angry with you. And it's possible for you to just burn in hell forever if you screw up one too many times. That was the culture that I lived in. Even though nobody said it, that's what I thought. So Rich Mullins was the window through which the, the ragamuffin gospel broke through, right? Um, that idea that he is pleased with me. You know? The, the idea that when I put on Christ, if it's true what the Bible says about how God sees Christ's righteousness when he looks at me, it means that you know that beautiful moment when, at Jesus' baptism when a voice comes from heaven and God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. It means that on my worst day, on my worst day, God still says, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. And uh, I've gotten to look at my boys, sorry, and my daughter and see them struggle with self-loathing, shame. You know, they're, old, they're teenagers now, so they've all got their own sins that they're struggling with. And uh, there's a deep power in looking at your child in, in their eyes and saying, the moment when you were doing the thing that you were hating yourself for, I loved you just as much as I do right now. Just as much. And I think Rich, uh, his music in particular, was the thing that... <sighs> I'm going to sing it tonight, probably, but there's my favorite Rich Mullins lyric is... Um, well, it's hard to say my favorite Rich Mullins lyric. <laughs> One of my favorite Rich Mullins lyrics is uh, the, the Love of God, the song The Love of God. And uh, if you guys don't know it, it's this. I'm just going to recite Rich Mullins lyrics to you all day long. <laughs> The lyric is, there's a wideness in God's mercy I cannot find on my, in, in my own, and it keeps his fire burning to melt this heart of stone. It keeps me aching with the yearning. It keeps me glad to have been caught in the reckless raging, in the reckless raging fury that they call the love of God. So when he talked about the love of God, he talked about it as this reckless raging fury. The only, like I thought of God's anger as a reckless raging fury, and Rich, Rich goes, no. Turn that around. It's God's love that is the thundercloud on the horizon, right? Um, somebody said one time, if, if you really want to see God's strength on full display, if you want to see God flex his muscles, it's not in mountains and thunderstorms. It's the cross. That's when God flexes his muscles to show his mercy. That's, his, that's, that's where he's strong. So, um, I mean, it's also in these other things, but, like, that's where it's at. So that, that was the moment that I think I... I uh, I don't know what to call it. It's hard to know when you became a Christian if you grew up in the church, you know. I was baptized when I was nine. It's all one big story. Um, but that was, that was definitely a, the moment that, where, where God kind of stopped playing around. So, anybody else? Yeah. Say it one more time. Oh, yeah. Well, with, with songwriting, this process begins with a lot of uh, self-doubt. And um, a lot of avoidance of what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, 
It's, uh, somebody asked me if I, if I get writer's block, and I said every single time I sit down to write, I get writer's block. Uh, you just kick through it. You just got to keep doing the thing. But on a practical level, it's like if, I, if it's time for me to, to make an album, because um, I don't write all the time. I don't, I tried, it's, hard, it's work, so I just avoid it. I'd much rather watch Breaking Bad, you know. So, I, so it's easy to kind of go, uh, you know, avoid the... Because the, there's a lot of failure. There's a lot of pain and a lot of failure and a lot of self-doubt that happens, so it's easy to... So my thing is I ceremonially take, ceremonially take my guitar out of the case and I put it in a stand in the corner. So it's like a gargoyle. So every, every time I walk through the room, the guitar, the eye of... It's like the lidless eye. It's a... <laughs> never thought of that before, but yeah, it's kind of like this, just following me everywhere I go, there's this guitar that's saying, hey, come do this thing. Uh, and so it makes it easy, make it easy, as easy as possible to sit down and, and start to write. Um, so for example, we had a huge white oak tree die in our front yard, and I'm too cheap to call somebody to come chop it up, so I just bought a chainsaw and spent a whole summer, it took me all summer, hours every day, and then taking the, the mall. I was really buff for the first time, and my wife keeps saying, we need another tree to fall down. Um, she really does joke, joke about that. But, uh, but I, got, I, re- I realized that it was a hassle. This is, this is me. Have you guys ever written a letter to somebody, and then you don't have stamps, and the letter sits there for like a month? Because it seems like such trouble to just go buy a stamp and put it in the... the like, our lives are busy, right? So I, I realized that I was not chopping down, chopping up the tree, because the chainsaw was in the shed about 50 feet over there, right? So I went to Walmart, and I bought a tub, that, and I put the chainsaw in the tub and the, the bar oil and the little gas can in the tub, and I put it right next to the tree so that on a whim, I could walk out my front door and not have to grab anything and flop open the thing and start cutting. So I think it's the same thing. Make it as easy as possible for you to like engage the work. So pop open the lid of the piano so that the keys are staring at you and the guitar is sitting there. Put your journal out, you know, trick yourself. And so, uh, and then when it's like, actually writing in earnest, I don't know if this will be helpful or not, but I tend to, uh, you know, you kind of sing nonsense. You look for the part and you mumble stuff uh, until you find a line maybe that, that will work and you play it on the guitar. And I just will keep doing it until I can't find anything else. And then I put the guitar down and I go to the piano and I play the exact same thing on the piano. And because the piano's more of a melodic instrument, you oh, yeah, this chord, that gave me a new melody idea, and I'll sit there until I'm exhausted, 30 minutes later, and maybe I got that far, that much farther into the song. And then I'll go to my journal, and I'll write the line and a half that I've got, and I'll sit there trying to, like, you know, free association, find something else to say until I'm tired. And then I'll go to the guitar, and by the time I'm back to the guitar, now I've got more to play, right? You've got, like, oh, I've got actually a whole first verse. And then when I'm exhausted, I'll try it in dadgad. I'll detune the thing and try to cape it up and try it in another key. So it's just this, like, musical chairs... Uh, where you're it's terrible, uh, kind of spinning, cycling through this stuff and just edging deeper into it. That's kind of how I do it. Everybody's got their own. Anybody who tells you they've got it, they know how to write a song, is either lying or a bad songwriter. <laughs> so there's there's no answer to it. Like it, the creative process is a great great mystery. Yeah. So always approach it humbly. Anybody else have any questions? Yeah. I guess maybe that you can 
Yeah, but I would, <laughs> I would not recommend doing it that way unless you absolutely have to. Honestly, like one of the most inspiring things as a songwriter is a mortgage payment. Really. <laughs> like like every, everybody who does this for a living, whether you're an author or a songwriter, you're really an entrepreneur. Like you're your own boss, and if, you, if somebody's going to pay the light bill, you've got to think up something some way to get paid, right? Um, and so it's not, not an easy thing, but man, like one of the worst things for my career could have been massive success early on. You know what I mean? I could have gotten really lazy and kind of just gotten chubby, sitting around and like, oh yeah, living off of royalties. But I didn't, you know? I, I had to keep kind of fighting through and like honing my craft and working at the thing. And so uh, with this new album, um, I just was really busy. I had been touring a lot. I taught a, I was a writer in residence at a school, and uh, that was way more work than I thought it would be. So that by the time February came, I had one song, the one I played last night. And so uh, it was, uh, it was just by necessity. I would, <laughs> I would never like count on it. You know what I mean? I would not count on the muse showing up in that way. It was just, a, it was just white hot terror <laughs> in the writing process. Um, and so. I don't know. Sometimes it works. And part of it is just that, like, if you have to do it, it, it takes away the, the excuse to, to go watch TV or check Facebook. No, no, no. There's people waiting on a CD in six weeks. I've got to write the songs, you know. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I wish I had a better answer. But I, somebody asked me if I will do that the next time I make an album. Like, oh, it worked on this one. Will you do it again? And it's like, heck no. Like, I will, anything to avoid that kind of stress. Um, so, uh, yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. How do you uh, bring out creativity? Yeah. Yeah, they're awesome. Um, my, my oldest is Aiden, and he's a visual artist, super great, uh, gets commissions and makes actually good money doing it, uh, and plays guitar. He's a big, like, Josh Ritter fan and uh, David Gray, that kind of stuff. And, uh, He's really good. Um, and then my middle son, Asher, is a drummer and has been on tour with us. Nathan, hey. One of my favorite, that's Nathan Johnson who played electric last night. One of my favorite things about the tour that we've been on is that Nathan and Asher are like best buds. Like Asher's 15, hanging with the bros, and uh, it's hilarious. So anyway, he's a really good drummer. And then my daughter, Sky is a singer and play, write, songwriter and uh, plays accordion and piano really well. Um, and I think that it, the way... We just, we value creativity in our house, and so we, we try to, like, it's kind of like a, you just put a bunch of toys out and let the kids play with them, let them gravitate to it. We didn't ever push any music or art onto our kids. We just left out the paintbrushes and left out the art books and hung pretty pictures on the walls and read stories at night and exposed them to as much really good stuff as we could. Um, and uh, one quick story about my daughter is, I you know, I would rather my kids listen to a really great song by somebody who's not a Christian than a really crappy song by somebody who is, right? And so we love Paul Simon's Graceland album in our house. Our kids know it really well. And so from a young age, we were exposing our kids to really good music, um, including good Christian music. That's not to say that there's... By the way, I don't know if Nate talked about this, but when people say the Christian music is bad, I always go, well, what are you listening to? <laughs> There's so much great music made by Christians out there. It's so much. I mean, like an overwhelming amount, stuff that I don't even have time to listen to. It's just not what happens to be super popular all the time, you know? Um, and so we, we listen to a, a broad range of music in our home. 
And my daughter became a, an Alison Krauss fan. You guys know Alison Krauss in Union Station. When she was a little girl, four or five years old, and um, she went when she was like 10 to this radio station tour in town, Christian radio station. And I, I said, make sure you don't tell them who I am because it'll just be super awkward. Uh, they'll apologize for never playing my songs. And so, uh, just kidding. And uh, so, so Sky came home from this Christian radio tour and they'd given her a bunch of free CDs and the top one was a, a CD of tween music. Did you know that there was such a thing, a demographic called tweens? So like 11 and 12 year old kids, evidently there's lots of money to be made there. So some Christian label had the idea that we're going to market to just tweens. And so the album cover was this hot pink, I can't remember, the, I wouldn't tell you the name of the band, but the hot pink cover and two teenage girls with like sideways ponytails and lots of like glitter and they're playing electric guitars like this. And it looked, it was hideous. And I was like, oh no. And I turned it over and I saw the song titles and they were really bad, something bland. Oh, it was just all bad. But Sky was really excited about it. She was like, Papa, look, they gave me the CD. And I was like, oh, that's great. And I was trying to think, how do I get it away from her before she, <laughs> before she hears it, you know, and then loves it. And then we've got to deal with that, you know, issue. It was as if my sons had brought home a Playboy. I was just like, no, we've got to get this out of our house right now, you know. So anyway, I, we're driving in the minivan, and my daughter, I was trying to like reach over to grab it and take it away, and before I could, she took it, ripped the cellophane off, shoved it in the CD player, and it came on, and it was really bad. It was just as bad as you would think it would be. And I was kind of like, oh, man. And my daughter, 30 seconds in, this guy goes, this is terrible. Can we just listen to Alison Krauss? <laughs> yes. Yes, you can listen to Alison Krauss. So I think that that's part of it, is like we just... One of the funnest things about being a parent, are you a parent yet? Do you have kids? One of the funnest things, and you, if, if you don't know this already, you'll find it, is being a curator of your the, the art that your kids get to experience. Like, you get to have this massive control early on of what they're exposed to. So, like, um, really great movies. Like, I'm not, you're not going to watch this Disney Channel garbage. Let's watch Braveheart, you know? What, what, talking with my teenage... <laughs> my teenage boys, Okay. So, uh, or, you know, great records, great albums, great albums. Like, try to just fill your life and your home and your iTunes playlist with as much really great stuff as you can. And I think that it's like that whole, uh, you know, when they teach counterfeiters, like the, the FBI guys to recognize counterfeit money, what they show them is they memorize what a real dollar bill looks like. That's how they do it. They don't show you the fake dollar bill. You memorize what a real dollar bill looks like so that when you see the fake one, you notice it. So that's what we're trying to do is show our kids lots of real dollar bills so that they kind of like have a little bit of discernment later on. So anybody else? And then more males. I've told you everything. Yes. Um, so I've been waiting years and years for Reverend Leonard Bond. Right now. Oh. Is yes. For, so for those of you guys who don't know, uh, about four albums ago, I made an album, um, and it was kind of loosely inspired by N.T. Wright's uh, Surprised by Hope, um, and kind of these, a lot of uh, reading about the resurrection. And so the album ended up being like loosely, thematically about the resurrection, right, and how it affects us. And so over the years, people have asked, when will you put out an album that is um, like, an, like an Easter version of Behold the Lamb of God, the Christmas record? And I've always said, oh, I'll never do that, because that would really smack of me kind of capitalizing on this, this idea. Well, I'll just replicate the same thing and do an Easter version, and that just felt all wrong to me. 
Um, so I just said no about that idea. And then we were making this CD about the resurrection, and the more I, we worked on it, the more I was like, man, it would be actually, I could kind of envision what it would look like to do a group of songs that was like specifically about the resurrection of Jesus, and then a group of songs about how it, what it means to us. And, but I'm already making that one, and we're too invested to stop this record and go write these songs. So I'm just going to release this one and call it Resurrection Letters Volume 2, because George Lucas did it and it worked. <laughs> And so it's a terrible idea. Like, if I wish I had never done that. But just because it's just like, I, it's, it sounds like an insurmountable task to, to like, in some ways, I, I feel like if God gave me a gift to write songs, there's no higher story I could tell than the story of Christ conquering death. And so um, I'm really nervous about it, <laughs> to be honest. I've written a few of the songs, but I'm, I'm having to take my time with it and, yeah, I want to. I just want to make it what it's supposed to be. So it's easy to put that one off. So sorry. I wish I had a better answer. Yeah. Kind of going with that and your principle of discipline. How how is the discernment process for you in knowing when to kind of leave something and when to really push through? Ah. When do you leave something and when do you push through? Uh. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think that there's an easy answer to that. I think you just have to trust a little bit of intuition. Um, but finishing is huge. Like, you've got to finish. How many of you guys have a, 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 the beginning of a novel, right? Or a short story, or a song. Like, we have piles of beginnings of songs, right? Um, so, one of the things that I, when I've talked to, uh, I met this little boy uh, at Starbucks. I was sitting at a Starbucks working on my book, and this family walked in, and this kid recognized me, and he was like, and he, he like had a copy of one of my books with him, and so we had this really fun conversation and talking about writing. And his mom goes, yeah, well, well, actually, Mason is trying to write his first book. He was like nine, uh, trying to write his first book right now. And I was like, well, tell me about your book. And he's like, oh, well, it's called Space Jet 5000, and, uh, which is an awesome name for a book. And, uh, and he was like, yeah, the bad guy's named Mr. Brains, which is also a great name for a bad guy. And he, told, he began to tell me this massive sci-fi mythology that he'd worked out. And I was like, so how far are you into the book? He was like, well, I'm on chapter 7 of 35 right now. And, and, and his mom said, do you have any advice for Mason? I was like, yes. Um, Mason, you should end your book by chapter 10. Like, finish it. Make the good guys beat the bad guys by chapter 10 because you're never going to finish this story that you just described to me. Like, we all know that. Like, we have this, every kid, like, my boys came up to me, uh, and I remember doing this. They came up to me when they were, like, four or five, and we moved into the country. And they were like, hey, Papa, we've been thinking, we're going to build an underground chamber in the front yard. <laughs> and, uh, and is that okay with you if we just go ahead and do it? Like, right over there, we're going to build a kind of a place to live and that kind of stuff. And I was like, totally, go for it, you know, because I knew, whoops, I knew in a very heartbreaking kind of way that they would start to dig the hole and then get about two hours in and realize this ain't never going to happen. And there's still a hole in our front yard. There's still, <laughs> I have to mow around it every time I mow. Uh, and every time I'm a little bit sad because I'm like, oh, I wish, like, I think that, that uh, somebody said one time that in the new creation, in an unfallen world, we're going to be able to realize perfectly what we imagine. Isn't that a great thought? <laughs> uh, my mom, my mom is a gardener, and uh, I have to play something for you. I'm going to play in the voicemail. My mom and dad are hilarious, and they're like small-town country people, 
And my mom calls me on November 4th every year to wish me a happy spiritual birthday because it was the day I was baptized. It's so funny. And so, uh, so they sent me this message. I'm going to hold it up to the thing. This is, this is awesome. This will tell you a lot about me. Ready? Oh, shoot. Speaker, hold on. Good morning. This is Mom and Dad. We wanted to wish you a happy spiritual birthday today. Amen to that. <laughs> That's all. Uh, but my mom, uh, <laughs> amen to that. My dad is always a preacher, always. Um, so anyway, they live in the country. They live in North Florida, kind of between Gainesville and Jacksonville, in this little uh, farmhouse on six acres. And uh, they moved there. They, we grew up in a church parsonage. I'm going to maybe end with this. It's about time. Okay. Um, we grew up in a church parsonage, um, which if you don't know what that is, like the, the manse or whatever, like where the pastor lives on the church campus. So my parents never had their own house. They always lived in the church's house. And so we got in extra trouble if we you know, mess something up in the house because it was the church's house. And uh, so, but my mom and dad are both like, uh, at their core, they're both farmy kind of people. Like my dad didn't grow up on a farm, but he uh, always kind of had this farmy sense to him. And they were always like, you know, like when I was a kid, they, they share cropped a, a peanut, an acre of peanuts. And we all, all those kids had to go out and like weed the thing. It was miserable. And uh, my mom's, Grew up on a dairy farm. So there's these farmy type people. So after all of us kids got out of the house, uh, my mom and dad finally were able to buy their own place. A little six-acre farmhouse, pretty little place just outside of town. It was a big deal because it was the only time they'd ever had their own land. And they went crazy. They planted lime trees and lemon trees and avocado trees and orange trees and kumquat trees. And they repaired the old chicken coop. So there's like 20 chickens. And they've got uh, this ama- kind of really amazing... It's like walking into a Cracker Barrel. That's my parents' house, right? Do you guys have Cracker Barrel here? It really is. Like, it looks just like it. There's like accordions on the wall and uh, weird knickknacks and signs for milk, whatever. It's, it's awesome. And, uh, and so they live in this place. And as a side note, I'll say that when, you know, living in the city, in a city like Nashville, where like buying local is like a thing that we do, in small towns, they've always done that. So it's kind of like, the hipsters are just catching up with what our parents in small towns were always doing. Um, but, like, I love it. When I go home to visit, I, I kind of revel in it. And I'm like, I wake up in the morning, I walk out to the chicken coop, and I grab the eggs, I break them into the skillet, and uh, I go and I you know, get milk that they got from a farmer down the road, and I go out on the tree and I pull the oranges off the tree and I slice the oranges. And I'm sit- Jamie and I sit there going, this is amazing that we can do this, like how wonderful that we can just eat what God made every morning. And my mom and dad, every morning for breakfast, eat Pop-Tarts. <laughs> I promise, I'm not exaggerating. They eat Pop-Tarts. They'll sit there while we've got eggs and whatever, and they'll sit just toasting. And I'll be like, you guys, do you realize how ironic this is? And they're like, we just like them, son. Just let us eat the Pop-Tarts. <laughs> anyway... So, my point is, my mom would never describe herself as a creative. She wouldn't even describe herself as, as a 
an artist, even though she quilts like nobody's business. Uh, but if you walk out into her garden, it's, it's magical. It's this amazing place. And, and my parents have gotten to the point where um, they're in their 70s now, and all four of us kids are realizing that when they die, none of us really want to go move back to Shiloh, which is what they call their homestead. Um, and we're like, what are we going to do with this property? I don't know what's going to happen when my parents are gone, you know. Um, and uh, it grieves me to no end to think about the fact that my mom's garden uh, and all the work that my dad has done there to make that little piece of land beautiful is all going to be overgrown with weeds. Whoever lives there after them is not going to love it like they do. I know. And when I go and I sit in on the stone bench in the garden on the bricks that my mom has paved in a path that winds through the orange trees and the hydrangeas are in bloom and there's wisteria growing over the arbor, you know, that's like these big fat wisteria trunks and these big like grape-like clusters of flowers are hanging down. I sit there and I think, oh, my parents have lived here for 15 years, 15 years. Imagine, uh, it's 15 years and then my mom's going to die and it's going to go away. And then I go, but in the new creation, in the new creation, my mom is going to have millions of years to tend a garden. If she can do this with 15 years, imagine what a million years is going to look like on my mom and dad's little corner of the new creation that God has given them to tend to and to take care of. And that's, that's what we're called into. We're called, like the, little, the things that we're making now um, are, are um, like shadows of what is to come. Um, C.S. Lewis talked about how heaven is already overlapping with now. Every good and beautiful thing that you see, every work of art that points to the coming kingdom, uh, we're going to get to heaven and we're going to realize that heaven had already overlapped and cast this long and beautiful shadow on the life that we have now. So that's what we're called to. When we tell our stories, when we write our songs, we're called uh, to engage in the fact that the kingdom is already here. <laughs> it's already here. And uh, we're, what we're doing has this eternal uh, significance. So I don't know how to wrap it up any better than that. Uh, I'm excited to be here with you guys, and uh, thanks for listening. See you later. Thanks. All done.